please open the Word of God to Galatians chapter 1. And uh, we have finished our study in Genesis, the Old Testament, so now we thought, let's go to another G in the New Testament, Galatians. And we're excited about this study, and uh, we trust that you are as well, because this is the Word of God. This is going to be an introduction to this letter, this book. Um, So let's pray together for our time to our great God who hears us. God, thank you that you hear us. Lord, thank you for that promise in your Word. Uh, Lord, that when we pray to you because of Jesus, you hear us. God, because he has covered us with his righteousness, because he has cleansed us with his blood, Father, because he has gone in our place to absorb all of your wrath because of our sin, we have life, we have hope, we have joy. Father, thank you for your Son, our Savior, our Lord and God, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that now as we study and read your word of Galatians, for this study, Father, I pray that we would say what you have said. Lord, that, we've not, that we would not go beyond your words. Lord, that we'd not um, leave any out, but God, that we would speak what you have said. We would explain it as you would want it explained, God, that you would have our hearts and minds open to receive and to hear and to be changed, God, by your word as your Holy Spirit works in us through it. God, we thank you. We praise you for one another and for this word. God, we pray now that you would do your work in us. In the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, we want to give you a little bit of context for this book as we jump into this and as we get a running head start in this. We call this a book of the Bible, Galatians, but it's really a letter. It's a letter uh, from an apostle, so we call this an epistle, an apostle letter, epistle. And it's not a very long one. But it's a very concentrated letter. It's a very concentrated epistle, letter from an apostle. So naturally, it's, of course, going to take us some time to unpack it so we can make sure that we understand it rightly and we apply it rightly. One of the hallmarks of inspired Scripture is something called the economy of words. God, in His Holy Spirit, as He breathed out this Word of God, used an economy of words, and uh, that is not many words. Otherwise, we'd have a, uh, instead of a book that we could carry around in the Bible, we'd have a trailer (laughs) with a whole library of of what God had said and what He meant by what He said. So He uses an economy of words, and uh, we're going to try to do the same thing, but uh, it will be a little bit more um, to explain Now, this book of Galatians, this letter, epistle of Galatians, is found in the New Testament and is a reminder of a context of the Scriptures themselves. This is in your notes. Uh, We want to be reminded about what that means for us as we study in the Old Testament or in the New Testament and where we are in uh, the New Testament. So, uh, within the canon of Scripture, the entire Old Testament, all 39 books of the Old Testament, was the preparation for Jesus and His gospel. Uh, that's what goes in that blank, preparation. When you get to the New Testament and you get to the Gospels, the Gospels in the New Testament are the manifestation of Jesus and His Gospel. The manifestation, that's where Jesus 
appears, and he's there as a human being, and God's gospel is there embodied, God's grace and his mercy and love embodied in that person, Jesus Christ. When you get to the book of Acts in the New Testament, that's the propagation of Jesus and his gospel. So, so when you're reading the book of Acts, it's how the gospel was propagated. It was spread throughout uh, the world as Jesus intended for it to be. The Old Testament was preparation. The, the Gospels are the manifestation. Acts is the propagation of Jesus and his gospel. The epistles, again, the letters in the New Testament, are the explanation of Jesus and his gospel. The explanation. So when you're reading an epistle in the New Testament, you're reading how Jesus and the gospel are to be understood and lived out in life. And then when you get to the book of Revelation, well, that's the consummation of Jesus and his gospel, the consummation. Everything is completed and fulfilled. Jesus is exalted. He's praised and worshiped forever as he deserves. He's exalted, and uh, we love all of this, but we love to see that as well. And so Galatians is one of the epistles in the New Testament, the explanation of Jesus and his gospel. And each epistle has its own character, or if you will, its own flavor. And so as we're going to see, Galatians is pretty spicy as a flavor (laughs) as we read it, as we study it together. Galatians is, therefore, at a broad level, a letter explaining the gospel, what it looks like to live out that gospel, to live out what Jesus calls us to do and to be. And so we want to make sure that we don't skip over that. Galatians goes a long way to teaching us and correcting us in what it looks like to understand the true gospel and live it out. Already, after Paul had left this area of Galatia, he had taught the true gospel, people were already coming into these churches, and they were mixing in man's ideas with the gospel, which, if you don't know, always leads to a different gospel than the one that's in the New Testament. There is only one true, pure gospel that God has given us in His Word, and to add anything to it or to take anything from it changes it to a different gospel. It's not the true gospel. So Paul wrote this letter, probably his first letter, the first letter that Paul ever wrote to churches or a church uh, who were already feeling the pressure to change the gospel. The culture around the people of Galatia and, and the people that were coming into the church were saying, look, you need to, make, you need to change the gospel. You need to get with the times. Otherwise, you know, people aren't going to come and people aren't going to be saved and you've got to change this and make it more palatable and make it more relatable and you've got to change the gospel, which has been the pressure that the church has felt throughout the centuries that Jesus has been building his church. This letter actually becomes so crucial to the church as a whole throughout the history of the church because even after several hundred years of people across the world being led astray by a partial mixed gospel, during what's called the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. They were led into superstition and syncretism. There was a reawakening. There was a renewed understanding of the true gospel. It was a call for a reformation. It was a call to get back to the true gospel, the Scriptures. Let's get rid of man's ideas that had invaded everything and and had mixed in with the gospel. It was brewing for many, many years, this this reformation, but it officially started on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door at the church at Wittenberg. 
what are you talking about? This is an important part of church history, and this is why our family celebrates on October 31st every year, Reformation Day, <laughs> not Halloween as much, <laughs> or at all. But he says, look, Martin Luther said in those 95 theses, he said, look, the gospel's been changed. We've got it wrong. We've gotten man's ideas in there. We need to get rid of the idea, the false, unbiblical idea of purgatory. We've got to get rid of the idea of indulgences. We've got anything that the church has added, anything that man has added or taken away from the gospel, we've got to, we've got to restore the gospel to the true, pure gospel of the Bible, the Scriptures, the New Testament. It sparked what we've called the Reformation it's the reason for Protestant churches, including ours, that we're not a Roman Catholic church. That's the reason for that. Even more importantly, it's the reason that we can understand the true gospel when we go to a church. Because we can say, look, here's what the Scripture says. Here's what God says from His own mouth, what Jesus has done so that we can be saved. Luther's ideas that sparked the Reformation, didn't, they weren't his own. They didn't just come out of nowhere. They came from the Scriptures, especially the New Testament, rather than church tradition. That's the idea of sola scriptura. Let's have the Bible, the Scriptures, as our, as our source of authority and, and what God says. That's what matters to us more than anything, any kind of tradition. And the true gospel was saved from the violence that mankind had done to it over several hundred years. But the ideas of what the gospel actually is came, again, from the Scriptures. They came largely from the New Testament, and especially the books or epistles of Romans and this book, this epistle, Galatians, what some people have called the Little Romans. It's a concentrated version of, of Romans. This book was so important to that man, Martin Luther, that he said he was married to this book of Galatians. It's so crucial to our understanding of the true gospel breathed out by God to us. It's that important. Now, humanly, it was written by the Apostle Paul. And nobody's ever really doubted that or argued that. Um, as we know from Acts, Paul was uh, one of God's primary instruments to bring the gospel to those who had never heard of Jesus before, the Gentiles. And he went to the Gentiles because he was sent by God. And so that's how we have this epistle. Paul was in this area. He left. As soon as he left, people tried to come in and change the gospel, so he wrote to them to say, stop, get the right gospel, the only true one from God through Jesus. So among scholars, there's a debate. And I want to let you know about this so that you know up front that this is a debate and it's just not all that important. But <laughs> we need to know about it because there's a debate over when Paul wrote this letter because, and that stems from the idea of who these Galatians were. And that's the part that, we, that we're really concerned about as part of the context of this book of Galatians. Who were the Galatians? What does Paul mean when he writes this letter? One of the interesting features of Galatians, you'll, you'll maybe note this, maybe you'll, you'll hear this when we read through it together, is that this is the only book from Paul written to churches, not just one church. The only letter from Paul that does that. But ever so briefly, so that we don't bore ourselves to death with minutiae, there is a debate over whether the Galatians were an ethnic group in the northern part of what's Galatia, or if they were a political group in the southern part of Galatia. If it was north, it was a later letter. If it was south, it was an earlier letter. 
here's why I think it's the earlier southern political area. Paul regularly used Roman provincial political names for areas. He does it three times in 1 Corinthians as an example. But Galatia is a political area when Paul uses that, I believe, not just the more specific ethnic area in the north. Why would you say that? Well, because in Acts chapters 13 and 14, in Paul's first missionary journey, he went through the cities of Antioch and Pisidia, Lystra, Derbe, and Iconium, which were all cities in the southern part of Galatia. In Galatians 2, three times, Barnabas is mentioned, as if the people knew who Barnabas was, and Barnabas only went with Paul during his first missionary journey to those cities. And so those are some reasons why I believe uh, that this was the southern part of Galatia, the, the political part, and you're saying, why does any of that matter? Well, as we study together, some of the details are going to be affected as we apply and as we understand the Scripture, whether it was a northern part or southern part. We'll get to those when we get to them. I just want you to have it in the back of your mind and to know that there's a debate. Um, but it's not going to fundamentally change anything that we study. Okay, so that's why we haven't spent any more time than two minutes. Um, what's more important for? What's more important to listen for as we read together is that there were personal attacks against Paul about, uh, against, I mean, from the people who were coming over to take over the churches in Galatia. And people had started to believe the attacks the accusations against Paul. And so since they were setting aside Paul as someone who was reliable, they were setting aside the gospel that he brought as reliable, and they were substituting it with something else, something that was man-made. It was man's ideas mixed in with the gospel. So much of this letter, especially as we begin it in chapters 1 and 2 and and following even, Paul is defending himself and his ministry because he's defending not just himself, but the gospel that he brought. But for now, here's the final important point that we need to understand as we read together. Okay, we, we, we do plan, that's part of our, our worship service this morning, part of our study this morning. We're going to just read through this letter of Galatians. And uh, Lord willing, it'll be a blessing for you as it will be for me and as it has been for uh, Pastor Kyle and Pastor Joe as we prepared for this. But one final important point that we need to understand as we read together, and that is what is being argued in this epistle, this letter. We know that there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Right? We said it at the beginning, the Old Testament was the preparation for Jesus, the New Testament is all about Jesus as well, but he's been manifested and and his gospel is propagated and so it's explained and then consummated in the New Testament. There is a difference, but there is also a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament together and any false gospel that's brought, that's taught, that's believed. There is a difference between the Old Testament and New Testament, and specifically in Galatians, the Judaism of the first century. This is in your notes. The Old Testament teaches salvation comes through faith just as the New Testament does. The Old Testament, let's say that again, the Old Testament teaches salvation comes to us through faith, by God's grace, through faith, not by works, just like the New Testament does. So we want to make sure that we understand that fully before we start reading this book. Paul is not going to be saying, look, the Old Testament, all 39 books of what we call the Scriptures and God's Word, throw it out. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying the Old Testament scriptures taught the same thing that the New Testament teaches. So let's not confuse that. In Genesis 15, you remember we studied Abraham's life. And God called Abraham out of Ur to go to another area. So he moved to the area of the promised land, the the land that God would promise to him and his seed later on. In Genesis 15, God says, Abraham, look up, see how many stars there are. If you can count them all, that's how many your descendants are going to be. Now, Abraham, in verse 6 of Genesis 15, believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abraham as righteousness. That point where Abraham believed God and he appointed it to him as righteousness. It wasn't the obedience of moving. It wasn't the outward works that Abraham did that justified him, that made him righteous before God. It was Abraham's belief in this God. That is when he was counted as righteousness. Even more, in chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul's going to argue that Abraham believed God and the gospel that was preached to him beforehand, before the law ever came. The law, which is all the list of rules that people are supposed to follow and that people are going to be trying to teach the Galatians, you have to follow these to be saved. Abraham didn't follow them because he didn't even have the law. That's the argument Paul's going to be making. We saw throughout Genesis, God's people who believed him. And when they acted on that belief, they were blessed. When they did not act on that belief, they stumbled. And then we got to see repentance, and we got to see grace from God and forgiveness and mercy. So the Old Testament is going to be teaching this. We saw it in Genesis. But even after God gave the law... God doesn't change his mind and start teaching the people in the Old Testament, okay, now that you have the law, obey it, and if you don't, you're going to hell, and if you do, you're going to heaven. He doesn't start teaching that at all, because here is what God says through Moses to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 10, and this is a little bit of of an extended section here, so you can turn if you'd like to Deuteronomy 10, uh, verse 12, or you can just listen to what God says through Moses to his people. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding today, for your good. Did you note the order there? It starts in the mind and the heart. It starts with faith. It starts with love for God. Then you're walking, you're you're obeying His commandments. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow who loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Do you hear the love from God, the heart from God that's throughout this passage, and the heart and the love that's expected uh, to God because of this? He continues and he says, um, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. Now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. 
Now, why are they called to love him and keep his commandments? Because they're trying to earn something from him? No, he's already told them. He's chosen you and your offspring. You're already his people. So, in response to that, because he has loved you, you love him and you keep his commandments. It didn't stop with Moses. Joshua calls for that total heart commitment in Joshua 24, and we're not going to read the whole section. It's in your notes there, but it's where he says, you need to choose who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The call in verse 23 is, incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. It's throughout the Old Testament. It's not obey the Lord and then he'll love you. It's not learn to do better, learn to live better, and then God will accept you. It's not if you want to be with God and go to heaven, well, you better get in line and clean up your life and figure it out yourself. That's not the New Testament. That's not the Old Testament. Later on, the people asked for a king, and they wanted a king instead of God as their king. And so as Samuel was retiring as the last of the judges in the Old Testament in Israel's history, He talked to them about the evil of their motivation. We want to be just like everybody else in the world. He says, you're not like everybody else in the world. God is your king, but you've rejected God as your king, so now you want a human being. And so he reveals that to them, and they say, please pray for us. (laughs) We need forgiveness. We've, We've done all of these horrible things, and then we topped it all off by rejecting God as our king. He says, please, they they say, please pray for us. Here's what Samuel does not say. He does not say, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal. You don't have to worry about it. Just try to do better, work harder, do some good works to outweigh the bad things that you've done. That's what he doesn't say. Here's what Samuel says to the people in 1 Samuel 12, 20. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. You have sinned. (laughs) There is sin here. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your works. Is that what he said? (laughs) Thankfully, praise God. No, that's not what he said. He said, yes, you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. God's after the heart. He's always been after our heart. He's not after our outward works, just motivated by being robots and trying to do it in our own power, in our own strength. He goes on to reassure them the Lord will not forsake his people despite their sin. He says, I'm going to continue to pray for you. I'm going to continue to teach the word to you. In verse 24, he says, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Now, we can't walk through the entire Old Testament. We can't walk through every part where God is teaching the people again and again and again. He's after their hearts. He's after their minds. He's after their outward works after he has their heart and their mind. That's a part of their response to him because they love him because he loved them first. But to, to summarize it from the prophets, Habakkuk 2.4, the Lord speaking directly to Habakkuk gives it to him plain when he says the righteous shall live by his faith. Okay, so it's, it's always been about our heart, our mind, our will, changing that in faith to believe in him, to follow him, to love him. The, New Testament, the Old Testament never allowed you to obey the law as a substitute for your heart. Your heart always comes first. Your heart and your mind are always directed to the Lord before your works are. The law, the law came along, and the law showed you that it's impossible for you to live out all that God says. 
The law taught you that you could never live it out, that it was meant to prove that to you. No matter how much you loved, no matter how much you tried, you could not obey it fully. So God gave the sacrificial system to Israel so that they would look forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. Well, so much more could be said. Um, I had planned for much more, but we want to read through this letter of Galatians. The idea that we just tried to lay out, though, was to don't make the mistake. Don't make the mistake of thinking the Old Testament taught you had to live by works, and the New Testament teaches all of God's grace. The Old Testament taught God's grace, and His grace is received through faith. The New Testament teaches the same thing. The Old Testament thought you received that by looking forward to Jesus. The New Testament teaches we look backward to Jesus in His coming, His first coming, His sacrifice, as we did this morning in the Lord's Supper, and we anticipate His second coming again. And so the, the, there is continuity. There is clear, uh, there's, there's a clear relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, in fact, if you deny Jesus as the fulfillment the, the Messiah, the Christ, you have to reinterpret and misinterpret the entire Old Testament because Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. So you necessarily have to go back and misinterpret the Old Testament if you don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior. And if you have not done that, we want to meet with you and talk with you and show this to you and, and show you the, the hope that we have of not just escaping God's wrath for our sin, but that we can live for Him, we can live a meaningful life of worship to Him now and forever. Okay, so as we read through Galatians, as we study it, don't think Paul is setting up something new against and over the Old Testament. This is, this is a continuation of what God has always taught. Uh, there is the, the, uh, the argument here is not against the Old Testament, but against Judaism against any false religion, and we will understand and we will apply it as we study it together. For now, let us read together Galatians, the entirety. Pastor Kyle, if you would, please. All right. Galatians chapter 1, we're going to start in the very beginning. We're going to work our way through the whole book. How many of you have read the book of Galatians in its entirety in this last year? Praise the Lord. Such an amazing book, and as James said, it's, uh, there's a lot in it. It's rich, and it's deep, and I pray that you would be encouraged as we read through it this morning. So, without uh, any more time, let's get right into it. Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, 
let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be, per- might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, and we that we should go to the Gentiles, and they too the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I posed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by, with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. 
The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through the angels by intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. But in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave, though he is an owner of everything. But if he's under the under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we are also, we were children. We're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I'm a, I have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily element that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have 
gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always because to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I have I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. And while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, the children of promise, but just as the time he was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so also is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness." For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. 
and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. To see what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation." And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Now, you don't know how hard it was for us to read these things and not explain and not to get into teaching and not to just start right away with this study as we were up here and reading. And uh, praise God, thank you for uh, being with us as we read through that. That's how the letter would be given to the Galatians. It would be given and it would just be read to everybody and then they'd refer back to it. So that's why we did this. Our application this morning is read Galatians. <laughs> read it. Understand it. Study it. We're going to study it together. So read it along with us and, and begin to study uh, yourself these amazing words of our God. There was so much more that I had planned to say, so much more that we could say. We'll save them for our study. So praise God for His Word. Praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ that comes to us not because we're good enough, not because we could ever be good enough, because Jesus is good enough. He was more than good enough, and He proved it when He lived a perfect life for us. He died to take away the punishment of our sins. He died for us in our place, but then he rose again to conquer our sin 
Not his own sin, our sin. And he conquered death that, that comes because of sin and he rose to be alive forevermore. We praise God for that good news. God, thank you for the truth of who you are, for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would not just say it, we'd not just speak it or sing it. God, that we would live that truth, the good news of Jesus. Father, give us the words to say, the boldness, the love for others, Lord, to share the gospel. Lord, to live it out, that you would be glorified, you'd be exalted, you'd be praised. God, it's a part of our spiritual, our reasonable life of worship that you called us to. Father, help us to live it out by the strength that you give us. In the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray and ask. Amen.